As we come to the Lord's Word, let's, let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that You've given us Your Word. And I pray that this morning that our ears will be attentive to what You have to say to us. And I pray, Lord, that You would help us to open Your Word clearly and to see what You have for us here. But Lord, may it not be an intellectual exercise, but something where You use Your Word to transform our hearts. So to that end, we commit ourselves and ask Your grace as we read here from Your Word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we began a series in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. We'll be here until, uh, until right up to Christmas. And last week we started with Genesis 1-1. We almost made it through the whole verse. Today we're going to go verses 2 through 23. <laughs> yeah, I hear some of you are really skeptical, and I kind of am too. There's material for dozens of sermons here, but there's no reason we can't get through it all, as long as you don't have any plans for the rest of the day. No, I'm going to try to work quickly. There's a lot of stuff here. I'm going to talk fast, which is tough for a Texas boy, but I'm going to try to talk fast. We know that most of contemporary culture tells us that this Genesis account of creation is naive, it's mythical, it's flawed, it's simply ridiculous for us to take it at face value and believe it. It's easy then to be intimidated to feel foolish if you believe that we really are created by God. And as the text here will unfold this morning in a period of days, not millions and billions of years, when we're surrounded by a sea of, quote, enlightened people who declare that science proves, quote, that we are the products of evolution working through natural processes over these millions and billions of years. But I want to remind you this morning that science cannot either prove evolution nor disprove creation. The origins of life and of the world concerns events in the distant past when none of us were around to observe them. And since origins can neither be demonstrated, nor observed, nor repeated, then any view of origins is fundamentally a philosophical question, not a scientific one. The realm of pure science, you see, has to deal with things that are demonstrable, observable, and repeatable. As a prominent British zoologist, L. Harrison Matthews, he's also an evolutionist, but he was honest when he stated in his introduction to the 1971 edition of Darwin's Origin of the Species, this is written in the introduction. Belief in the theory of evolution is thus exactly parallel to belief in special creation. Both are concepts which believers know to be true, but neither up to the present has been capable of proof. What he says is that 
Belief in evolution is a belief. And belief in creation is a belief. And evolutionists believe that it is very true. And creationists, we believe that this is very true. But no one's been able to prove it. And he says, not yet. The reality is, he's, that's the one place he's wrong. <laughs> there is no way to prove either one. Both are a matter of faith. The question is not, are you going to believe in faith? The question is, which one are you going to believe? Evolutionists generally hold three presuppositions. Presuppositions which, by the way, go in contradiction to the Scripture. And these three presuppositions predispose them to believe evolution. The first of these presuppositions is naturalism. That there is a natural explanation for everything. In other words, God or creation or anything supernatural is eliminated not because of evidence, but by presupposition. Any alternative explanation to God or to creation or to something supernatural, any alternative explanation, no matter how absurd or ridiculous it might be, must be taken over believing in God or whatever because it's been taken off the table before you ever started. Naturalism. A second presupposition which generally evolutionists hold to is uniformitarianism. Meaning that the, the natural processes that we observe today in the world are the same as they have always been and they are sufficient to explain and to date the past. And so, in other words, it would be going to the Grand Canyon and looking down and seeing that there's a, a little river down there and that little river erodes dirt away at this much per year. And therefore, if we're going to have it, since the canyon is this big, it had to take this many million years to form this canyon. Which would be true if that's all the water that ever flowed through there. But what if you had a whole bunch of water flow through there? Maybe you could make that canyon in a day or two or whatever. You see, that's uniformitarianism. But you know, the Bible tells us that there are two cataclysmic things that happen. We find them right here in these early chapters of Genesis which have reshaped our world from its original creation. The first that we find in Genesis 3 will be there in this study uh, ways down the road. We find that sin came into the world and God placed the world under a curse. The world today is not the world that was created here in Genesis 1. Well, it is the world, but it's different. Secondly, Genesis chapters 6 through 9 tell us that there was a worldwide flood, flood of Noah's day. That flood has dramatically changed and reshaped a lot of things in the world as we see it today. Those two things, you see, evolutionists say didn't happen and uh, that messes with their understanding of the world. A third thing, a presupposition that evolutionists have is that apparent age equals real age. 
And that seems to make an awful lot of sense. If something looks old, it is old. And when we look at the world around us and we look and we see how old something is, we say, or how old something appears, we say, therefore, it is that old. And that makes sense except for the fact that when we come to Genesis, what we realize in our account today as we'll look at some things is that when God created some things, He creates everything mature. When He created Adam, which we won't get to today, that'll be later, but when He creates Adam, He didn't create a, uh, an embryo that grew and grew and grew to a little boy that grew to a man. He creates a man fully grown. He's seconds old and He's a fully grown man. We'll see today when He creates trees, they are mature. Now, I don't know if you cut a tree that's seconds old after God created I don't know if you cut it down if you're going to see rings. Maybe you would. On the outside, it looks like a mature tree. And maybe the rings would be there. I don't know. It'd be a question I want to ask God someday. When you look at stars, and they say that stars, that you know, it's millions of light years away. It takes millions of years for light to get from that star to here. Well, that's a big problem. Well, not necessarily. You see, the God who creates everything mature, the the light instantaneously can be here. So that's the Bible tells us that just because it might look old doesn't mean it is because God created a mature world. So that messes with the presuppositions of evolutionists. Stephen Hawking, you might know that name, well-known scientist, atheist. He actually died last year. But he once conceded along these lines. Of course, he didn't believe that there was a God. But if there is a God, he said this. He said, it's quite possible that God acts in ways that cannot be described by scientific laws. What he recognizes, yeah, if God exists, then all these presuppositions fall apart. And that's the point. They're meaningless if there's a Creator God. And as people who are convinced that God is, that God exists, we have no reason to be intimidated. We have no reason to feel foolish to believe what God has said here about how the world and the universe and us, how we all came to be. Because it is perfectly logical and rational and reasonable if there is a God. So brothers and sisters, don't be intimidated when we come to this text. And we live in a world that says it's foolishness. By the way, it's always been foolish to follow God according to the world. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. But as we said last week, we don't check our brains at the door. We are rational people, but we are rational people who believe in a sovereign and infinite God. And so let's come here to the text this morning. Let's look, and I've got to start moving fast here, to look at the, the account of the beginning of the world. We're going to only look at the first five days of creation here in these 23 verses, but let's dig in. Chapter 1 of Genesis, verses 1 and 2. Follow along. I hope you have a Bible open. It's always helpful to look at the Word as we read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. As the days of creation begin, God creates the heavens and the earth. The earth, it says, it's formless and empty. It's covered by water and it's shrouded in darkness. This description may sound a little bit bleak, but it's not. There's really a beautiful thing here. And it's not really apparent to us, but if you look, it says the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. It's an interesting little phrase that, as far as I'm aware, it only comes another one other place in Scripture. One place, at least where you can find it, one place for sure. Deuteronomy chapter 32, 11. There it's used to describe God in relation to His people. And it's describing Him as a as an eagle who is hovering over It's young. He's hovering and brooding, protecting, providing for the it's young. That's the point here. God hasn't created an accidental mess in this formless and empty world that He's created. But rather, God is moving lovingly over and preparing to shape this Material that he's created. He's, he's like a potter who's about to, t- he's taken a lump of clay and has placed it on the potter's wheel and is about to shape it into a work of art. That's the picture here. Verse three, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Day one of creation. On this day, God creates light. He speaks and it appears. He separates the light from the darkness and He names the light day and the darkness night. As we go through these days of creation, you're going to notice that there's a, a pattern that's repeated. Actually, there's six days of creation. The seventh day, you know, is the, the day of rest. And we'll get there. But on these six days of creation, there's four things that happen every day. It's a pattern you'll notice in each one. First, you'll notice that God speaks a command. He speaks a command of creation. Let there be. Every day He does that once, except on day three and day six, He speaks twice a creative command. Then when God speaks, not surprisingly, whatever God speaks happens. He speaks and the Scripture says, and it was so. The command was fulfilled. What's astounding about it is the scope of the command. And when you read through, look at what He speaks and just in a word, what happens instantly. Then God comments. In some of the comments, He names things as He did here in the verses we just read. He names the light. He calls it day. He names the darkness. He calls it night. Other times, He pronounces it good. He makes various comments. So the the Creator comments on His creation. And then, the fourth thing in these repeating patterns is that 
At the end of each day, the day is defined. There was evening, there was morning. One day. On day two, we pick it up in verse six. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Day two, God creates an expanse of space. Calls it here in the the verse we read, calls it heaven. And he, he, He separates water and He puts water below the expanse and water above. Exactly what this expanse is. Most Bible scholars would say what's happening here is we're creating the earth's atmospheres. The waters above are generally thought to be the, the moisture that's in the atmosphere, clouds, etc., and the waters below or the seas. Some Bible scholars see here just a little more beyond creation of the atmosphere around the earth. Some see also the creation here of all of space. They get that because that verse there, the expanse, is the same word that we'll run across a little bit later down in verse 14 and 15 where it says that He sets the the sun and the moon and the stars in the expanse. And so, maybe what He creates here is space. Of course, they use the word here in Scripture, the word expanse can be used kind of the same way we do. We talk, or when we talk about the heaven, we can talk about the heaven or the atmosphere being right here, about the, the earth's atmosphere right here. We can talk about the heavens being as something way out there. And the expanse, the word expanse here could be either or. There's still other scholars who see something else here. Some will see that these waters above the expanse maybe were a big canopy of water vapor that surrounded and encircled the earth. A transparent layer of water vapor that would create what so many are afraid of from carbon dioxide emissions, a greenhouse effect on the earth. In this case, not a negative thing, but a positive thing, a temperate climate over all of the earth's surface. If that, if that did happen, then what they say is that that water vapor canopy was condensed at the time of the flood and removed after the flood. It's not here anymore. If they're correct and if that's there, if that was there at this time, it does explain some of those little mysteries that are here in Genesis, like how did people live so long, such long ages? The water vapor canopy would have potentially removed so many harmful ultraviolet rays that cause aging and a lot of things. Interesting. It would explain where the rainbow came from. The, the rainbow was shows up after the flood. God gives it as a promise there will never be another flood. Why wasn't there a rainbow before? It could explain where all the water came from for the flood. If you condensed all the water vapor in our atmosphere right now, you don't get 40 40 days and nights of rain over the whole surface of the earth. So, that's a great interesting theory. Is it here in the Bible? Well, maybe. (laughs) All that to say there's a lot of stuff we don't know. This account here in, in Genesis is not to answer all our questions talk a little bit more about why it's here in just a minute. Just to know that 
On day two, God creates the atmosphere. He separates waters that we know for sure. Verses 9 to 13, let's move on to day 3. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Day three, God causes dry land to appear. And the first life is created, not air-breathing creature type life, but plant vegetation life. He fills the earth with vegetation. And notice that as He plants these things there, He puts into the plants the power to reproduce. The ability to fill the earth. But would you notice, did you notice that phrase as we read through it came up again and again? There's a little clarification that's repeated just so you don't miss it. It says, It's to bear fruit. It's to reproduce after its kind. That little phrase is added every time after this that God creates life. Always it it says after that that it will reproduce after its own kind. Evolution fundamentally fails as an explanation of our origins. And it does right here at this point. One of the key central tenets of evolution is that life evolves and changes and becomes a different kind of life. That's the basis, the core of evolutionary thought. And yet, it's the great embarrassment of evolution that after over 150 years of desperately looking to find one bona fide example, one bona fide evidence that it has actually happened, they haven't found any yet. Of course, the reality is they never will because you can't find what doesn't exist. And it can't be done because God says when I created it, I made it this way. Every kind of life reproduces after its own kind. God has created DNA and genetics so that that's that's what happens. So that roses produce roses and apples produce more apples. And dogs make dogs and Fish make fish. Worms make worms. We use worms to catch fish. But they don't become fish. They're almost God built into the DNA. He built in an almost infinite possibilities for varieties within kinds. And we have seen all amazing amounts of varieties 
staggering, glorious. And so you have largemouth bass and smallmouth bass and white bass and yellow bass and spotted bass and Ozark bass and rock bass. And those of you who are big fishermen could probably name a half dozen other types of bass. The one thing that will never happen is none of those bass fish will become phytobass. Phytobass that has pointy ears and a fuzzy tail and four legs and a penchant for chasing cats. Bass will beget, they will give birth to other types of bass. We may see new varieties emerge before our eyes. But we will never see one kind of critter, as we say in Texas, one kind of God's creation of life become a different kind. And they will never find evidence of that happening in the past because it didn't. We have God's Word on it. Verse 14, as we move on to day 4. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. On day four, God creates the sun, the moon, the stars. And if you have never read this before, and you are astute and you read that and you... you, you think about it a second and you say, wait a minute, Pastor, you've got a problem here. And it's a problem that many have scoffed at from the outside unbelievers have used and go, oh, look here, see? The Bible account of creation is foolishness. Here you have on day four, God creating the sun, the moon, and the stars. And He created vegetation, plant life on day three. Well, they can't live without light. And... <laughs> And even worse is He created light on day one, but you don't have the sun, moon, and stars still here. This is foolishness. May I say, don't get stressed out by it. Where did the light come from? If the sun, moon, and stars aren't created here, where did the light come from for day and night, for morning and evening on days one, two, and three? Well, the answer is simple. It came from God Himself. And it shouldn't surprise us if you look to the end of the book, and I know I said we're going to do this, but we talk about the similarities between the first chapters of Genesis and the end of the book in Revelation and the parallels. We go to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. We talk about the new heavens, the new earth. We talk about the new Jerusalem, our heavenly home. And you know what it says there? They have no need for the sun or moon, for the Lord Himself is the light. Apparently, in heaven, there's not going to be a sun or moon either. God is the light. started off that way in Genesis 1 in the first verse, second verse. Interesting. 
All God does here is He creates the sun. And for three days they've already had light. All God does is just attach the light to the sun. You see, God is God does that. That makes no sense to us in our little physical world. But God's the Creator who speaks everything into existence. And so it looks to us like the light comes from the sun. And indeed, the sun is a source of light. But it is all because God made it happen. And is it a problem for God to create the light first and then the sun? Does He have to create the sun first and then the light? It's not a problem at all. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? The answer is very simple. The chicken. God doesn't need eggs to make chickens. God makes chickens. <laughs> he doesn't need suns to make light. God makes light. He is light. God gives three reasons why He creates these celestial bodies, the sun, moon, stars. You see it here. The first is to give light. The second is to separate the day from the night. It's all here in the text. The third, he says, is to serve as signs. Just to clarify, that doesn't mean that the, the signs as in, ooh, there's the sun, the stars, forgive me, oh, so I know who I should ask out on a date and what job I should take. This is not astrology. That is not of God. He tells us very clearly what it's to be signs of. Did you, if you just read the text, it always would help if people would read Scripture. Christians wouldn't have... What, maybe did God put the, sign, the stars there as signs? Yes, He did, but look at what signs of. Signs of to mark the days and the seasons. You see, they're to be calendar markers, which is especially helpful in the days before we had cell phones. You know, I know it's September because I can pull this out and it tells me. <laughs> People actually used to look at the sun, count <laughs> days and seasons and marking it by the sun, moon, and stars that God put there. I love this little thing. Verse 16, he created the... He talked about the sun, the moon, then just this three little words, and the stars. I love that. Classic understatement, except it's really not... When you're God who is infinite, it really isn't a big deal. But to us, it sounds like a big deal. I, I love stars. I love to look at stars. I, the, one of the things I hate about living in town is that you got all the lights and they block out most of the stars. I love it when you just get out in the middle of nowhere and you've been there when the stars just are so bright, they pop out and you see stars you never even imagined all these stars. They're so so many and so big. And you're, on one hand, when you're in those kind of places, sometimes they seem so close that you could touch them, but then you realize just how immense and how big it is. And then you realize, as David says in Psalm 8, oh, when I consider all that, what is man? I'm so tiny. What is man that you're mindful of him? It makes us feel that way. Billions of stars, Carl Sagan used to say, right? And we're just alone in this billions of stars. We feel so small. Except this. That's what I love about this passage. God brings it for us into perspective. You see, on the one hand, there's the sheer immensity of it. 
On the other hand, we realize that God made them all with one word, and He did it all for night lights. You know, we've got the sun for the daytime, we've got the moon for the night, we just need something else. Stars. Instantly, billions of stars across, from our perspective, infinite space. God simply spoke it into existence. And Carl Sagan was wrong because we are not alone in this universe. What it says is we are, in, we are so very close to the infinite God who did all that just for us so we could have, we, we could have night lights and so that we could, we could study them and learn about seasons and movements and rotation and about our planet and where we are. And mostly... So we could just appreciate, wow, we have a big God. I don't need to be afraid because I have a big God. So much more I want to say about all that. I've got to move. We're almost to the end, though. We're at day four. We're coming up on day five, verse 20. And God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly over above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Again, we could do a whole lesson on that, but just God creates the sea creatures and the birds. I just want to note one thing. Did you notice that? Let, this cre- let the waters swarm. What that tells us is there's no long ages and no process of evolution here. It's God says, let the oceans teem, let them be just swirling with sea creatures. We'll look at day six next week. But I have to come back and I, I want to deal a little more specifically for just in our last minutes with one question because it comes up quite a bit. Especially with folks who go out and you're intimidated when you go out and you're listening to folks talking about evolution, uh, unbelievers, and you feel intimidated. And you hear other Christians who say, you know, I believe that God created everything, but He he obviously used evolution to do it, and he did it over a period of millions of years. And I've been saying, and, and it is our, our belief here at the chapel, that God did all this in six days. But there, people wonder, I mean, is it possible that this passage allows for long ages and, and God to work through evolution to make these things happen? And I want to... I wanna, go back here to the text and just point out some things that, well, I'll give us six reasons why I think this passage teaches us. But we're going to look at six reasons why these are six days, not six billion years. Six days from the text. Because it's not about what do we want this to say, it's about what does God say. And am I going to believe God or am I going to believe you know, Billy Bob the scientist. 
who, as the honest ones have said, as I read from uh, earlier this this uh, morning, that it's it's faith to believe that it all happened without God. So let's look at this here. Six reasons for six days in the text. The first is, it's just the plain reading of the text. As I just said a minute ago with the, the swarming creatures, uh, it, the plain reading is not that God made this, started a process and then sat back and watched for a few thousand years. God let, let it happen and it was so. It happened. It's instantaneous. It's the plain reading of the text. Anyone, whether you are just, you know, you, or me, an average person, or whether you're a Hebrew scholar who reads this text, the conclusion is plain. The intent of this text is that God created everything in six 24-hour days. It could not be plainer. You look at the technicalities of it, the word day that's used, because the question comes up, well, could the word day mean long ages? After all, doesn't the Apostle Peter write in his little letter, 1 Peter what is it, chapter 3, where he says that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years or a thousand years like a day? Could that not be the case? And, and the answer is, well, what does the word day mean? Let's look at it. It's Hebrew is the word yom, and it's just like our word day. It's used like our word day. The normal usage of the word when we talk about day is we mean a 24-hour day. And that's the normal, most common usage of the word in Hebrew. But sometimes we use the word day to refer to the daylight, the, the daylight person, the portion of the day. And in Hebrew, it's used that same way. Matter of fact, it was used that way right here. When we go back to verse 3 where God created the light, and He says in verse 5, He called the light day. The daylight portion He called day. It's the same word, yom. We sometimes take the word day and we use our English word day to refer to a longer period of time. Like all of us older people. Well, back in my day. <laughs> okay. And Hebrew uses it that way as well. Matter of fact, it even does in this passage on creation. We get over actually to the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 4, where it's going back and looking at the six days of creation. And there in chapter 2, verse 4, it's uses, it talks of the six days of creation as the day of creation. So you say, well, there you go, Pastor. That word day can mean more than one day. Couldn't it mean long ages? Well, it can. Except. Unless. In Hebrew, in the Bible, every single time you find the word day with a number, one day, two day, three day, it's always referring to 24-hour days. And you'll notice, we go back to that pattern, every day of creation here, what does it do? It ends with day one, day two, day three. It's like God knew that somebody was going to bring that up someday and God said, I'm just going to put that here in the text. If that wasn't enough, God did something else. Again, in that pattern, what does He say? There was evening and there was morning. Can't get much plainer than that. That's governed by 
the sun and the moon. And so you've got, at least by day four, you've got the sun and the moon there, and that's governing day and night, and, and uh, they have to be 24-hour days there. Well, that gives the earlier days. They could be longer. Uh, yeah, then you've got a problem because you've got plants that were created. I think, see, God did that on purpose too. Because you can't have plants live for millions of years with no light. If you have millions of years of darkness and millions of years of light, that doesn't work. It's silliness. But God, so God put it in here. It's evening and morning. It's day one. Does anybody have any questions? Yeah. Apparently still plenty of Christians still struggle with that. But the Bible teaches it. I don't think it could be plainer. A fourth reason is that chapter 2, verse 1. Let me just read it. Look there. You can just turn over a page. Thus the heavens and the earth were... What's the next word? Huh? Finished. Did you notice that? Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. God finished it. Here and every other place in the Bible that I can think of, where it talks about the creation of the world, it always talks about the creation of the world in the past tense. God created. Why? Because God created and it was finished. What's significant about that is that the whole theory of evolution and everything is all about everything's keeping on going. And God says, I'm done. It's done. Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. God, as part of the Ten Commandments, you realize He establishes the Sabbath, the day of rest. And, it's, and you'll notice the explanation there in Exodus chapter 20 is you should... You should rest on this day because in six days God created the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day God rested. The only reason, the only way that the, the whole command of the Sabbath makes sense is if the pattern of the, the actual time of creation was six literal days and a seventh day where God rested. If this isn't literal seven days, then... The command about the Sabbath doesn't make any sense. Lastly, after each step of creation, we noted again that God said, it is good. But may I say, if God did not create everything in seven days, then how could He ever say that it was good? Evolution, by its very definition, is this process drug out over millions of years, there's always this continual thing where, where the, there's always needed more, more changes and more time to try to get this, this little critter to move from this to that. And, and it's never good. Or it's, when it is finally good, it's at the expense of a bazillion critters that were subpar, that didn't make the cut. <laughs> They got exterminated because they weren't the fittest to survive. How do you call that good? When to get here, we had to kill off all of those. It doesn't fit. That's just six reasons we could come up with more. The reality is, I think it's foolish for Christians, and sadly there are many, who have thrown away Genesis chapters 1 and 2 saying, no, that's not really what God meant, when it really very plainly is what God says. 
And so as people of faith, we say, no, we're going to take God at His Word. Again, because this isn't to answer every question about origins. It's, it's not intended as well to be a scientific thing. But I believe that everything it says here is accurate. It's true. The purpose of the creation account here is to help us have a little perspective, yes, of where we came from. But the big reason it's here, I believe, is to point us back, as I said last week, who's the center of the whole story? It's God. In the beginning, God. It's to point us to God and to cause you and me to see the greatness of the God who has revealed Himself to us and who loves us and has called us into a relationship with Him. It's to, to help us to, to see how great is the God who spoke and worlds came into being, who spoke and light sprang out of darkness, who spoke and celestial bodies flew across the universe into their places, who spoke and the earth was made habitable, who spoke and the earth was filled with vegetation of indescribable beauty and complexity and variety and wonderful taste, by the way, much of it who spoke and creatures swam in the seas and starfish landed on the shores, who spoke and giraffes started galloping across plains and chimpanzees started swinging through trees and woolly mammoths started pounding across the ground and armadillas did whatever armadillas do. It's written to bring us on our knees before a sovereign Lord and God who created it all so we might give Him glory and worship Him as He deserves. And to enable us to love Him and to trust Him and to follow Him with all we are and have. As Psalm 33 said, we read it earlier in our Scripture reading, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the people of all the people of the world revere Him, for He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Father God, we haven't even begun to understand how amazing You are Constantly people are discovering things that we never knew existed. Sea creatures that no one has ever seen before. But you knew it. You created them. You put them there for your enjoyment. And so that one day somebody would find one and go, what is this? And God, you were, so you could sit back and say, yeah, I knew it was there. I made it. We're finding things out in the universe that we've never seen before. There's so much we've never even scratched the surface. Yet it's all there to display Your glory. It doesn't scream out, Oh, the wonders of science. Oh, the wonders of chance, of randomness. It screams out, Oh, the beauty and glory of a magnificent Creator. So, Father, may this move us to honor You and praise You and live for You 
and to share the good news of Jesus with a world that needs to know you. It's in your name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.